is time that you learn to recognize the value you provide to others. Welcome to the Art of Value podcast, where it's all about how to discover value, create options, and start pricing. Here's your host, the visionary of value, Kirk Bowman. Welcome to the Art of Value show. My name is Kirk Bowman, the visionary of value. This is the show where we discover value, create options, and start pricing. On behalf of the Art of Value community, I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group called the Art of Value Society. Go to artofvalue.com slash society. Welcome to the Art of Value show, my friend, Hector Garcia. Hector is a CPA who's been voted one of the top 10 QuickBook advisors for 2017. He was also awarded top 40 under 40 by CPA Practice Advisor Magazine. He graduated from Florida International University with four degrees in marketing, finance, taxation, and accounting. He's created one of the top YouTube channels for the QuickBooks community with over 2 million views. He's married with four kids under 10, and he still manages to maintain his own personal website, HectorGarcia.com. Hector, welcome to the show. Hi, Kirk. Thanks for taking me. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. We have been connected, I guess, virtually for probably at least a couple of years, but then I had the chance to meet you in person recently at Scaling New Heights down in Orlando, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Kirk. My honor. Let's dive right in. What's the most important thing you can share about pricing? The most important thing is um, for me to be aware that I can get it wrong almost every time, or if not, I would say absolutely every time. Um, this is what I mean. Every time I give a price, let's say the high price in the case of options, and my client says yes, I just know that I left money on the table. I know that I could have gone higher. And then every time I give a price, let's say on the low side of the options, and the client says no, well, that means I definitely either misunderstood how the client values my service, or obviously I got it wrong because I didn't get the business. The funny part is maybe I got it right because I didn't want to take the client at a lower amount. So this is what what I love about uh, options in particular, that although you can get it wrong every single time, options kind of put a a, a, uh, railings, guard railings in your margin of error. So basically you're saying pricing is a skill that you have to learn. And one of the best ways you learn is by your mistakes. I think you will never stop really learning the pricing skill because pricing is so incredibly subjective that no matter how good you think you are or how experienced you are with it, you're going to get a brand new customer with a brand new point of view with a whole different way of looking at things that may or may not uh, share with you through the value conversation everything that they're thinking. So that when you come in with a price, it could be wrong, but you can get better uh, through practice. You can definitely get better by starting picking up the hints and, and knowing exactly how to administer that value conversation time by asking the right questions. I think you're right. It definitely is a learning experience. And every time you talk to a customer, there's an opportunity that you may encounter somebody with a different personality, a different perspective on the value conversation, different circumstances where you're going to have to hone your skills. And sometimes the way you hone it is literally by making a mistake. Fortunately, 
with someone like you, you've got hindsight. You're actually not just putting the deal together and customer accepts or not moving on, but you're paying attention to what they choose and learning from that so that the next time you're talking to the next customer, you're continuing to build upon what you learned the last time. That's right. Absolutely. So what was it that caused you to become interested in value pricing? Maybe let's start here. What was your first exposure to value pricing? Honestly, my first exposure was without me knowing so, uh, me giving fixed prices to customers based on what I called uh, the retail model that I learned from my previous life. So about over a decade ago, I used to work for Best Buy and I used to work for the Geek Squad department. Yes, I was a Geek Squad guy. And I remember we having a menu price table where you know all the services were were fixed price. Now, when when it comes to fixing computers, uh, fixing viruses from a computer, doing data backup and data transfer, nothing could be more individually different, case by case. But somehow, you know, this big box retail company figured out how to do uh, a fixed menu price for all the services, and somehow. You win some, you you lose some. Like I used, I used to go with my supervisor all the time and say, "Hey, how can we price this so low? This is going to take me four hours, five hours." And then he told me, "Don't worry, you know, it it all averages out at the end." So when I came into somehow, I went from retail electronics into accounting through to the history of my of my work. Um, I the first thing I wanted to do was give menu style pricing. So I started giving menu style pricing for my bookkeeping services nine years ago when I started my company. And that was my first exposure. Now, that wasn't value pricing yet, but it was my first step into uh, making sure that my customers on the other side, they have a predictable price up front. As a matter of fact, because I started my bookkeeping practice with no accounting knowledge, I didn't come with any of the bad habits of hourly fees. Now, what's interesting, Kirk, is that uh, after a while and after I basically underpriced a lot of these uh, services because I had a menu, I basically uh, dumped that and went straight to to hourly pricing. And, I, and it took me like four or five years to go from $50 an hour to almost $200 an hour. And I thought I was doing a great job. I thought I was soaring. I thought my brand was increasing because my hourly rate was increasing. And then close to 2013, either 2013 or 2014, I saw Ron Baker speak in uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a big accounting conference called Scaling New Heights. And just the way he explained things, it was just such a, it was a huge eye opener for me. And then from there on, I would say for the last four years, I've been on that journey to kind of marry my two experiences, you know, me trying to give a fixed menu price up front and me, you know, going into that journey of keep increasing my hourly rate every year. So I'm trying to hybrid the two into a new system, which I don't have to reinvent. It's, it's the simple concept of value pricing. You have an interesting journey. Very few people that I've talked to kind of started out with some form of fixed pricing, then transitioned over to hourly and then back to value. So that's kind of a unique perspective. When you talk about Best Buy, you know, I've Geek Squad originally was a separate company and then Best Buy bought it, but I've never thought about their type of pricing as value pricing, but you're right. It is menu pricing where for everybody who has, you know, one virus that you've got to remove, right? It's a certain fee. 
versus with value pricing where you actually step in and go, well, what is this particular customer's need? Not they have a virus, but you could, to carry the analogy further, go, well, what virus is it? And how is their computer used? And what's the impact of them being down? Now, obviously, Geek Squad wouldn't do that. It doesn't fit in that type of business model. But that's essentially what we're doing with value pricing. Furthermore, not, not to discount whether Geek Squad or Best Buy with their menu pricing is or isn't value pricing. Um, I would definitely agree with you that it's not necessarily value pricing, but in contrast to the alternative, from, from some client's perspective, it could be. So for example, if somebody has a virus in their computer and they call a technician, they're typically going to charge hourly, $100 an hour, $125 an hour, and it could take two hours, three hours, or four hours. When they do walk into a menu price, which is not value price, but it is a fixed price. And by the way, there's a premium in there. So if, if I'm sure that Best Buy did some sort of analytics and said, well, the average it takes is, let's say, 1.5 hours. And what they want is essentially, let's say, $100 an hour. So they take that and then they add a premium of some sort to make up for the ones that completely, they're not necessarily out of scope, but they're, they're one-off outlier cases. But for most customers uh, that walk in, they're getting a fixed price up front. They may not necessarily be equivalent to the value they're getting out of it, but at least they know upfront what it's going to cost in contrast of paying some hourly rate for a computer guy to go to go to your house or your office or whatever. So you mentioned that in 2013, you heard Ron Baker speak, which is a common theme on this show. Ron's had a lot of influence, particularly in the accounting field. What was it that Ron said or that you learned that made you go, this is the business model for me. I want to go in this direction. The one thing that Ron said was uh, he, he made the, the, the analogy of the spreadsheet. You know, he said that by definition, uh, tracking time, it's unprofessional. And he, he was kind of going through the background of, you know, what a professional is. A professional is someone that, that um, has the knowledge to solve some sort of problem and gets paid to do that. Um, in contrast, if you know you have knowledge that could potentially solve some problem, but in in terms you don't charge to solve the problem, you charge for the time that it takes you to do it. He labeled that as unprofessional. And you know, me as a young accountant, as a young professional, one of the most important things to me is to to be professional and appear professional. And he made such a strong case that tracking time it's unprofessional, that that made me think a lot. That's an interesting perspective. I have had guests such as my friend Ed Kless, who will come on the show and say that hourly billing is immoral and unethical. Unprofessional is a different word that has a different context, although right and wrong plays into it. And it's interesting that, you know, you think about other professions like attorneys I think you would really shock a room full of attorneys if you stood up and said hourly billing is unprofessional. Now, I agree with you, but unpack why you feel like it's unprofessional. First, I'll unpack what you said as well. Um, immoral may be a bit of a strong word, and, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Some of my clients come to me, especially new ones, come to me and say, Hector, I need you for an hour. I just need to pick your brain for an hour. How much would you charge? Um, in, in those cases, it is very, very difficult for me to like spend more time value pricing that hour than just 
billing for that hour and see what comes from there. So I could decline it and say, well, I can't do this because I don't do hourly billing, but then also lose the opportunity to um, understand this client and possibly offer some other services. So I wouldn't call it immoral if, if your client is specifically asking for that. Now, what could potentially be unethical or immoral is if you tell your client, yeah, it's going to be an open clock and I'll let you know when it's done and it's a complete Pandora's box and it could be anything. I think that could lend itself uh, for it to be immoral or unethical. But in some cases, people specifically want an hour or two and, and because all they want is some general guidance to know which path to go. But the reason why I think uh, hourly billing is potentially unprofessional. It's because if you are the expert at, at some subject matter, or if you're known to solve uh, certain problems, the clients come to you, sometimes they, don't, they won't say it verbatim, but they come to you on under that mantle of, um, of expectation, where they're coming to you for you to solve a problem. Your own situation your or circumstances may affect your capacity to solve that problem in a in an hour two hours a day a week five minutes right um so i think that using our own particular cir- circumstances that happen during the project in order to build from that that where the client knows or doesn't know what that price is going to be up front that's what makes it unprofessional. I, I believe that in, in, in all commercial situations, there should be clarity on two things. The expectations, you know, what, what as a professional I am expected to do and achieve, what as a customer I'm expected to do and how am I, how am I expected to behave and interact with the professional, that's the expectation part, and the price. The price needs to be clear, needs to be upfront. And, and look, I, I have my one hour consultation rate on my email signature. I, I, I'm not you know, 100% transformed to value pricing because I do wanna have an open door for those folks that just want to kind of get to know me and ask me a few questions. And I charge for that one hour time. But right off the bat, I make sure that they don't expect me to work in that fashion. Like I would love to engage them into some sort of solution in which you know the prices clearly defined up front and my scope and the access to me is clearly defined as well. Your approach to kind of that initial short consultation, it really is a menu price essentially. And I think not only for yourself, but possibly others in a similar situation, a slight pivot might simply say, well, for the initial consultation, here's my fee. And rather than kind of labeling it under that hourly tradition, just say, well, the initial consultation, you know, 60, 90 minutes, give or take, here's what it is. Because you're really there, right? You're really not charging by the hour. It's just some professions tend to package things in hours, like a massage or counseling. And that's kind of what you're doing with this initial consultation. So you've made this switch over to value pricing. And as you said, it's a journey. What's been one of your best successes so far? In other words, what's something either you've achieved in your business or you've helped a customer achieve that wouldn't have been possible if you weren't approaching them from this business philosophy? Let me start by telling you a story in which um, the hourly fees worked really well for my customer and not so well for me. 
and then I'll transition over to, uh, you know, to a story of success. So just recently I had a person uh, that reached out to me and they said, Hector, I need you for a couple hours. Just help me import some data into my QuickBooks. Uh, that way I have my database good to go when I move forward. And we effectively did that. We scheduled a two hour consultation. It took two hours and 15 minutes, but it was just a, a flat fee for the two hours. And when I logged into their computer, for whatever reason, everything went perfect. Like, you know, their item list was clear. I understood exactly what they wanted. I saw a, a very clear error on the way the database was put together. In, in two hours, I was able to literally transform how they do business uh, just by importing their item list. I mean, it, it, it was incredible. And then when it's finished, the customer actually told me, hey, I think you may have saved me 10 to 12 hours a week of work with what you just did. Now, at that point, I learned it's, it happens very often. I learned the very hard, harsh lesson that I definitely underpriced the deal. But I didn't know walking in up front, the client asked for two hours. I gave him a two hour flat fee. But if I would have known up front, I could have priced this thing for fifteen hundred, two thousand, twenty five hundred. If I would have known that what the client was looking for was to save 10 to 12 hours a week worth uh, worth of uh, you know worth of work on their own, I would have priced the deal much different. Now that would not have been immoral and professional or anything like that because it do, it do, took me 15 years to learn that particular skill that was applying to that particular situation. So this is a situation in which you know for the client it was great, for me not so great. Um, another um, a story, a success story is. We value priced a project, uh, say about a year and a half ago, for about uh, six or seven thousand dollars. Something that normally wouldn't be that high, but the client up front was very untrustful. Like everything about the the interaction was untrustful. Like the client was very hesitant to give us passwords, to give us access to their their you know, their books, access to their documents, which makes no sense because we're we're supposed to be their accountant. So how, how are we supposed to do the work without access to all this stuff? But we didn't really know what the issues were with this client that caused them to be that way. We just detected up front that the client was generally an untrustful individual. So we priced what we normally would have priced for maybe a couple thousand bucks uh, higher into like the $6,000 range, just because we knew something was going to happen somewhere along the the the, the engagement in which we would either have to walk out out of frustration because of the lack of trust, or we would have to bite the bullet and work through with the client, almost like psychologists, to, to, to break through that problem that he had with trust. So essentially, it did happen exactly as we suspected. Halfway through the engagement, we had a big fight with the client because the client said what's taking so long and then we came back and say, well, you have to put the admin password every time we're going to do something. And you're only here 25% of the times that we show up. So it is very, very difficult to, to, to make it go through. And he tells me, Hector, I can't give you the password. And I said, let's step outside for a second. And we talked and talked and talked. And it turned out that he used to um, be partners with his brother like five or six years ago. And his own brother stole from him. His own brother betrayed him. So, you know, how am I supposed to compete with trust when his own brother did that? Um, so we actually sat down and say, okay, let's talk through what control mechanisms you can put in place in order to be able to give us 
you know, the trust to give us the access, but also have the monitoring systems to see what is it that we're doing. So we basically completely stepped out of what the engagement was, which is, you know, doing a, accounting and inventory uh, work to going back and, and giving him the tools that he needs to be able to trust people enough, but also the monitoring systems, you know, reports, what can he look at? What can he monitor just to feel that he can give away some of that trust. And it's really transformed them. I mean, he's, he's called me a year, two years later, just to chat, tell me what, you know, how are things, you know, can you come here for a couple hours? I want you to kind of check our numbers, but, but you can see in his face, you can see, you know, he's just a happier person. I don't think he trusts people anymore. Um, we weren't able to fix that. You need a psychologist for that, some really deep therapy for that. But at least we gave him some tools in which he can create monitoring mechanisms so he feels that he still has control after he delegates. So I would say that was a very um, satisfaction, uh, satisfactory story uh, from something we were able to do for someone, not just their business, but for them personally. A couple of lessons I want to draw out of that story. First, sometimes... When we're getting into value pricing, we assume that the only factor we can take into account when pricing is strictly the value to the customer. And that is the primary consideration, but not the only. In this situation, your intuition told you this is going to be a more challenging customer. You could sense that from the conversation and so forth. So you took that into account when you set the price. And that is fine. It is one of the considerations that you should consider not only whether you accept a customer, but also in how you price them. But then once you got into the engagement, you took the time to actually get to know the customer. I love how you phrased it. You said, let's step outside. Of course, down in the South, that could mean you're fixing to get into a bar fight. But for you, it was, let's have a conversation. What is behind this resistance? My guess is the level and trust the level of trust increased simply because you took the time to have that conversation that not all advisors would do. They would just push through it or they might just throw their hands up and walk away. But you took the time to do that. I had two choices. I either walk out of the deal, potentially um, give give the man his entire uh, payment back because you know that was a guarantee. We were guaranteeing the results, which is one of the, the, the best and worst things about value pricing is that in order for you to value price it, you have to guarantee a result. But we couldn't, we weren't even close to a result just because we had so many guardrails around our work. So I had two choices halfway through. I either throw my hands in the air and say, you know what, here you go, Mr. Customer. And by the way, more often than, the, than not, I actually do that. I, I, I tend not to spend that much emotional energy into a customer. But, but this particular one just seemed like a simple solution. And by the way, it isn't. Uh, we weren't able to fix the, the trust issues, uh, but we were able to at least somehow be able to give him, uh, you know, some initial tools because in the nature of the work in accounting, um, you also are taught what's called internal controls and internal controls are actually meant for you to be able to delegate work, to have multiple people touching the numbers and touching the books, but there be guardrails or checking, double checking mechanisms to make sure that the numbers don't go wrong. So all we did is um, inserted an accounting concept, which is internal controls into a small business that typically doesn't have it through understanding what the client's needs were. So I, 
this is not a typical case where I, you know, where I play psychologist every single time. But for whatever reason, when when I stepped outside, not to fight, but it was, uh, but it was uh, it, it, the reason why I said I step outside is because there was employees nearby, and I'm also worried. I, I assume that he was worried about just being completely honest and truthful when there's people walking around and that sort of thing. So that step outside was more like, hey, let's just have a one-on-one. But for whatever reason, he was receptive towards it and it worked. But I promise you, it's not like that every time. I've had situations in which the client says, no, I'm not gonna step outside. You know, my rules are my rules. And at that point, you just have to give up. But for whatever reason, he was receptive. So like some clients are difficult, but some of them actually want help. And this was a difficult case, but but he wanted the help. And 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 I like, we really enjoy working with people that want the help. That is the role of an advisor. It's, it's to give advice when they're receptive towards it, not to force it into them, but to wait for that moment that says, okay, what do you have in mind? And at that point, that's when you turn from, you know, practitioner to, to an advisor. As you transition to value pricing, what have you found to be one of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome to adopt the business model? Because those of us who've made the transition, sometimes others who are listening to us describe it can perceive it as too easy. In other words, you know, we've kind of been through the journey. And sometimes when you talk about the journey, you just talk about, you know, the highlights. But what was something you had to push through to get to where you are? I created this huge YouTube channel, probably one of the largest on mostly QuickBooks type of work, QuickBooks and Excel, that sort of thing. And the reason for that was actually combined with my journey through value pricing. My biggest challenge was being able to use that initial time, that value conversation time, that first time that we sit down with a client to figure out what their needs are. However, before I had my YouTube channel, that I would say a good 30 to 40% of that time was completely invested in rapport building, right? On, on establishing the credibility, on, on making that personal connection. And, and then what ends up happening is, let's say, for example, I only budgeted 45 minutes to an hour in my calendar to spend with that customer to figure out what their services are. Then what ends up happening is I, I didn't have enough time to truly discover their needs. And, and, and my prices were just not accurate. You know, many a times we were leaving stuff on the table or some expectations were not properly set, or I started realizing that value pricing is way too challenging because I have to spend two to three hours, you know, with a customer to truly understand their needs. So I created my YouTube channel mostly so I can make personal connections with people and establish the rapport as a subject matter expert in, in the QuickBooks work that I do. And every new client that comes in and says, Hector, I need to meet with you and I want to talk about XYZ topic. I always reply saying, sure, let's talk on Wednesday, whatever it is. Let, let me send you a couple of videos on the subject matter that may, you know, that may give you some food for thought. So what ends up happening is with a huge library of videos of different topics, almost every single prospect I have a video or a couple that talk about the subject matter that we are gonna talk about. And I'm telling you, in some cases, it feels like I'm shooting myself in the foot because that initial engagement that was to do some sort of work could potentially completely go away because the client through the video learns how to do it themselves and then no longer needs me. And by the way, it has happened. 
you know, where somebody cancels and goes, oh, by the way, your video answered all my questions. Thank you. We don't need to meet. So I've had, I have shot myself in the foot by giving away the knowledge up front and losing some clients and prospects along the way. But the ones that I do gain, I walk in with such strong credibility where the clients say, wow, I was watching the video you sent me. And then I spent another three hours watching another, you know, couple of videos you did. He says, wow, you really know your stuff. And then it's like, okay, I don't have to build any more rapport. Then I can concentrate that entire uh, hour or whatever time I have to really get to know the customer, get to know their business, and then I can price. So, so my biggest challenge is finding enough quality time to spend with the client to, to give that price without sacrificing the time that I need to get work done. A couple of perspectives on kind of what is part of your marketing approach. Number one, that ability to give value up front before the customer officially engages you. Just like you said, we heard this phrase, no like, and trust. You're investing in them before they turn around and invest in you. Second, and this may not happen all the time, but I would bet it happens at least 50% of the time. Those customers that come to you, you point them toward a resource that allows them to solve their own problem and they don't engage you. A lot of times, either that may not have been a customer you wanted or the particular value of what they wanted may have been too low for it to be worth it for you to get to know them and price it. So in some ways, not only is it benefiting you with the customers you do take on by building trust, but I think it's also a pretty good way to help screen customers as well. The the interesting part is, like almost all professions, you know, we... We have knowledge that we apply in accounting. We don't have any special tools, like at least in the the medical profession, you know, only doctors have access to certain tools and certain drugs and that sort of thing. And then lawyers have access to courts and judges and stuff like that, that normally we don't, but accounting in particular, we accountants don't have a lot, a lot more privileges than the average Joe. What we do could be learned. What we what we do could be replaced by a do-it-yourselfer, by someone doing it on their own. And it's it's quite risky to give away, or or not risky. I don't think it's risky, but people tell me um, it's very risky to give away that knowledge up front because you could be shooting yourself in the foot. And that's true. And and I possibly have put some bookkeepers or some uh, colleagues. And I don't want to say out of business, but I probably would have essentially taught some of their potential customers how to do it on their own. So in, in that in that way, maybe I'm not liked so much. But what I've done by creating this library, it's for me to select the customers I want. And I want customers that will spend at least an hour to try to figure out themselves or understand it in depth. That way they don't just come in and give you the proverbial box of receipts. You know, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get a, a weed out or screen out the, the box of receipt customers and the ones that spend an hour or half an hour understanding the issue at hand by watching one of the videos. These people walk in in a different mindset, a bit more sophisticated. And when they come in, they're, they're, they're sort of impressed by what you do so much that they don't want you to do basic stuff. They actually want to engage you in complex things. They want to say, hey, I want to bring you in to help me solve some higher level problems that I didn't even know an accountant can do. 
but because you were able to solve the little problem up front with a video or show that you you have mastery of a particular tool, I think that that skill set could help me um, do something that I never even knew could be done, but I trust that maybe you could because of what I've seen. So that's that's the really interesting part about uh, about giving the videos up front, potentially, you know, feeding uh, customers your knowledge that could put yourself out of a job, but also on the other side of the coin, getting you those much better media engagements that you probably want if you are in the advisory business, as I proclaim to be. <laughs> if you don't do the YouTube videos, somebody else probably is. And so there is always going to be, particularly with the internet and great tools like YouTube and so forth, there's always going to be good information for the people who are more the do-it-yourself type. But like you said, the opportunity it creates for you is to get, as you called it, the more complex problems. I would call it the more valuable problems. Because with the more valuable problems, not only is the value high to the customer, but because it is, you can charge higher price. And so it's actually a win-win. You've been in value pricing for three to four years what is your perspective on what I would call the state of value pricing within the accounting field? The people that I interact with mostly are what we call the conference goers. I mean, they're, they're a small group of individuals that make that extra effort every year or a couple of times a year to go to these grand conferences that talk about all sorts of issues with the profession, value pricing being one of them. Ron Baker and uh, let's, let's call it his minions um, are the ones that typically are the ones uh, giving that voice to value pricing. And there's, 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 there's all sorts of professionals talking about the concept. So for, for, for the few that, that are those typical conference goers, the, the ones that are sort of in the know, they're, they're, they're reading about the profession, they're reading the magazines, they're, they're watching the online publications. Those folks are, are pretty much good to go with the concept. I think most of them get the concept. So it would be rare that you would talk to to one of them about value pricing and they would say, "Oh, I never heard about it. Tell me about it." So I think so so I think they've done a really really good job at getting the concept out there. What where we get a little bit of resistance in our industry is on on that difference between the pre-established accountant that has been practicing for 10-15 years, a CPA that already has accustomed all of their customers to pay $200, $250 an hour. What is it What is it that they charge? And their customers refer them other customers that are telling them, by the way, he charges this much per hour. For them, which have a business model that works, it's very challenging to get them to actually transform to it. Like they get the point, they probably agree with it, but if it works, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think a lot of them have that attitude. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we have some of the ones that are, you know, mostly getting started or maybe some non-CPA bookkeepers or uh, you know, maybe some younger high tech uh, 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 accounting professionals that are not just doing accounting work. They're doing some sort of software data integration consulting for those folks tend to be a, a much easier transition because number one, their hourly rate is already so low. Uh, you know, 30, 40, $50 an hour, that they actually definitely see how they're leaving money on the table. And, and also, they, they they believe that the risk level, it's 
it's pretty small, you know, for an accountant that has a thousand tax returns they do per year that they charge hourly for, you know, changing a rate, moving the rate up or down or changing the way you bill um, could potentially have a big impact. You know, if you lose 10% of your clients to, to an established accountant, that could be 10% of your revenue for, for a, a smaller bookkeeper or, or a young technology-based accounting professional. Losing a couple of clients is not such a huge chunk of the revenue and what they can gain from value pricing is much higher. So from some of the younger folks and the, and the, and, and the bookkeeping non-CPA practices, those tend to adapt it a lot faster. However, Kirk, there is a huge need for the how-to value price. I mean, Ron Baker's book, Implementing Value Pricing, it's great. You go through it. I mean, there's some practical ways to uh, approach it, but accountants, we, we are not very creative. Um, well, you know, actually, I don't want to speak in general terms like that. I happen not to be very creative in certain ways as an accountant, or at least the accountant side of me is not too creative. So this whole concept of having to pull a price out of nowhere, right, or having to give options in which it, it, it requires a, a, a lot of creativeness, um, that's challenging. It's hard. It is much easier to say it's my hourly rate and that's it. And, and the people that say yes, great. The people that say no, no. So. The, the problem is we need some help, some an illustration, a visual sort of how-to with actual prices, with actual scope of work, with actual cases in which we actually get to see it work. I actually haven't learned value. I didn't learn value pricing until I actually started writing it down in front of a client, you know, taking three pieces of paper and saying, option A, I will do all these services, this price, option two. And once I started seeing visually and started seeing the customer's reaction to the visual options, that's when I start, started really truly learning. But there, there isn't anything out there uh, teaching us how to do that. So for, for the accounting profession, unfortunately, we are big into checklists. We want checklists. We want to make sure that A through Z is done, and now we officially value priced. And, and value pricing, it's, it's, it's much more subjective and much more creative than that. So that's the challenge that we have. And, and until we break through that concept, um, I don't know if it's going to be a generational shift or, or some sort of educational shift, um, you're still going to have at least more than 50% of the profession at now still hourly billing. One of the things that I observe at the Scaling New Heights conference, which it seems like that audience was more bookkeepers than accountants is that bookkeepers are much more receptive to this idea of a new business model, doing business a different way than, quote, what you might think of the more educated professionals. I hate to label that because I'm not saying one group is smarter and one's not, but essentially, you know, CPAs have to go through, you know, not only a certification test, but also very rigid uh, uh, type of education, right? Because of the fact that they're doing taxation and payroll and those kind of things. Bookkeepers are more open to it. Why do you think that is? I think that bookkeepers are typically dealing with the day-to-day a lot more and they're concerned with the details a lot more. Most, uh, most CPA tax preparer folks, they just want the high level numbers and they do all their tax advice from there. But the bookkeepers are looking at the day-to-day stuff. They're actually the ones watching little events of transformation 
with their clients as they implement technologies. You know, when you're inside of a client's office next to the business owner and you're watching them, you know, uh, balance the checkbook by hand, you're watching them go through the frustration of going through paper receipts. When you watch them do that and you actually grab them by the hand and say, hey, there is a better way. Let me show you this software that can do this. Let me show you how to scan the documents. Let me show you how to print the checks. The bookkeepers are actually the ones watching this little tiny events of transformation that are taking away the stress from the business owner and they're giving them more freedom to work on their business, not in their business. And they're the ones that are noticing how much money they're leaving on the table. They're the ones that are feeling like an employee when they're charging 20, 30, $40 an hour, whatever it is, but they're feeling like an employee because it's adding all this value within that time frame, and they're only getting paid based on the time frame they're there, but they're actually making huge strides of transformation with their business clients. So because they, they see this firsthand and they don't see the, the immediate reward from it, when they hear something like, hey, you can now get what you're worth as long as you can deliver it by using this concept of value pricing, then they're totally receptive towards it because they're the ones that know you know how how much you how much big impact the little things that they do have one of the things you said is making me think and i haven't thought in this direction before but you said one of the reasons you think the bookkeepers may be more willing to switch is because where they are in the process the amount of value they're creating is so much higher than the revenue or the payment they're receiving, they feel that imbalance, I would say maybe even feel it intuitively in their soul. And so they see the business model as a way to resolve that internal tension. Whereas just like you said, accountants that are more established that are charging much higher rates, that tension's not as high. And I've never thought about the fact that the people who are most likely to switch are the ones who have possibly the highest degree of tension between the value being created for the customer and what they're being paid. That's right. And a lot of bookkeepers are the ones that end up doing all the work and then they give it to the accounting professional. The accounting professional does, you know, like if, if, you're, if you're not in the taxpayer side and the, the tax preparation side, you don't see it. Like you, you basically send documents out there and it, like a machine, it comes back with a tax return. So most bookkeepers don't really know what happens behind the scenes. But what they do know is that they spent, let's say, 100 hours for the whole year putting those numbers together and their whole year's worth of bills for 100 hours ends up being the exact same that the uh, tax professional sends to prepare the tax return and send it back within a day. So they're the ones that see the consternation right up front. And, and some of them feel, wow, I did all the work and, and, and he or she charged all the money just because they had three letters next to their name. And that's, I'm not saying they all feel like that, but that is, that is a general feeling that I used to have when I was a bookkeeper and not a CPA. And I was on that side. I was like, man, I did all the work. CPA gets all the reward. Again, they deserved it. They went to school. They got certified. They're, they go through the rigorous continuing education. I get it. And I'm not envious. I wasn't envious of it. As a matter of fact, that fueled me to go back to school, study some more and become a CPA. But that is the reason why bookkeepers are immediately receptive towards it, because they put the time, they put the effort and they don't seem to get a lot of the reward 
in comparison to some of these other professionals. So I want to transition over to your YouTube channel because 2 million views, that's pretty substantial. A lot of YouTube people or people that are on YouTube trying to build a market would love to have that many views. What made you decide to go with YouTube as a platform? I learned a couple of years ago that uh, Google made a masterful, a masterful purchase, possibly one of the most significant acquisitions that any tech company has made, which Google purchased YouTube. I think this happened in 20, 2004, 2005. Back then, it didn't make any sense. It was way overvalued. But then, as we start learning that Google is the first place where people search anything. And one of the most common uh, prefixes of any searches is how to. So it's, so Google learned that so many people are starting searches with the word how. Now, there's two ways to deliver how. You either deliver it in an audio format, an MP3 or something like that, or a podcast or whatever. You deliver it on, a, on an article, on a blog article, or you deliver it on a video. As more and more people make the shifts to mobile phones, you know, it's very hard to read an, a long article on a mobile phone. So most folks are waiting in a line somewhere or, or, you know, in the park while their kids are playing around. They prefer to watch a five minute video that explains things uh, both vis with visual and audio than to read an actual article on how to do something. So there, there's been an explosion of how to videos. And a lot of these searches, like how to reconcile my bank account, something that gets searched a lot in Google, um, it's much more fun and easier to learn by watching a video on, on the actual steps on how to do it than actually reading an article about it. So it is much more uh, impactful as the as a person trying to show off their skill like myself or the person trying to educate like myself to put it in a video than to put it in an article. And um, and and you and you get. Uh, immediate feedback of that. So when you actually in your YouTube uh, backend management uh, system, you can actually see how many views you have, the average view. You can know at what point people drop off, which is huge. This is something that you don't get with text. You know, when you write an article, all you know is whether somebody landed on the article or not. You actually don't know whether they read the whole thing. With YouTube, you actually get that. So I've been able to also learn through my videos what I can do to make things uninteresting that causes people to drop off. And I start seeing patterns on where people start dropping off at a certain point. I'll give you one fun stat. In my YouTube channel, my average video length is 22.5 minutes, right? So I got some videos are five minutes and some videos are an hour and a half. Um, across my entire channel, my average view is 6.2 minutes. I've asked about seven other YouTubers that have uh, uh, channels that don't do as long videos as I do. And the average is also six minutes. So I'm learning through this journey that the attention span of the average person I can reach, it is six minutes. So I'm trying to now transform all my videos to six minute segments, which now, now that's an art form because I got to figure out how to explain long, complicated concepts in six minute segments that are logical and they're sequential. So that's why I picked YouTube. It, it gives me so much flavor on the back end to understand my customer, how they learn, 
what they find interesting and not. And also, you know, you got the thumbs up, you got the, the likes, the dislikes, you got the comments, which is great because after every video I say, hey, you have any questions, add your comments below or what type of videos you would like to see. And then what ends up happening is in the comment section, you get people's feelings right off the bat saying, oh, that video was great. I wish you had covered this or that video was great. I find this to be challenging. So with those comments, then I know what content I need to I need to proactively create. So that's why I picked YouTube. It's just, it's got incredible analytics on the back end that really help you understand your audience. With a longer topic, is it as simple as, for example, just to keep the math easy, if it's a 48 minute video, you know, you create an eight part series of six minute videos. Is it that, or is there more to it than just the magic number of six? The, the magic number of six is the six minutes happens to be my channel average. Uh, there are some folks that don't don't ever create uh, videos that are more than than six, and that that turns into be a different number. So uh, it, it all depends on the industry, Kirk. So if for whatever reason, for people that want to learn QuickBooks, six minutes is the limit. I'm sure that for other industries or other video topics, the number could be different. But the the, the solution would be to somehow take something that takes 48 minutes and break it into the six minute segments, but it doesn't have to be exactly six minutes. Like some can be five, some can be eight. You just wanna play with the averages. Um, the key element, Kirk, is if you wanna grow the YouTube channel, I know this is a little bit different subject, but if you wanna grow the YouTube channel in terms of uh, subscribers and views and likes, YouTube needs to see your channel as relevant. And the way they measure relevancy is by percentage of view time. So if a lot of your videos are being fast forwarded or they're cutting off midway, Google will see it as a little bit less uh, relative because Google's business model is to keep you in YouTube as much as possible so you can also watch more ads. Remember, most videos have an ad at the beginning and an ad at the end. So if you got a one hour long video, you're only seeing two ads. But if you're watching six videos, then YouTube has the chance to show 12 ads. Does that make sense? So, so it, you also wanna play with, with what YouTube wants you to do. Because if you do what YouTube wants you to do, they're gonna push your videos up. So Kirk, it's kinda like uh, you know, finding the balance of, of, the, of, of all of those. The first thing that came to my mind when you mentioned ads was, I'm always going four, three, two, one, skip ad. Do they measure those analytics? Do you know for the advertisers? Do advertisers know which ads are being skipped and which aren't? Another interesting analytic is how many click-throughs you get. So um, the, 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 the way Google shares revenue with you, because the ads are something that they share with me. By the way, what Google pays me does not pay me back for the investment I made in the channel. I'm not in it for the Google shared revenue with the ads, although it's nice. I'll definitely take a check from Google any time of the day. But the way they do it is they give you about half of what Google produces in ads. The ads pay a, a, a particular dollar amount for, for an impression, and they pay a significantly higher amount for a click. So if your YouTube video, um, for whatever it is, the title, the thumbnail, attracted people that are propensed to click on ads, then your channel, you, that particular video has a higher click-through rate and that video becomes more attractive for advertisers. So the answer is absolutely yes, they do measure that. 
We could probably do a whole show on simply how to grow YouTube and the analytics, but I want to bring it back to your business. What's been the impact of investing heavily in social media, particularly YouTube, for your business? The number one impact it's had, and this is going to sound a little coy, is if my clients say you're too expensive, I say, um, you know, who are you comparing me to? And they say, well, you know, XYZ person will do it for this price. And then I say, well, do me a favor, go to their YouTube channel, watch a couple of videos on the subject matter. And then after you realize that that person or company does it as well as we do, uh, then I, I will accept, you know, I will actually accept the fact that you, you, you're you right. Somebody else is doing it for lower. And the, the usual response is, I can't find the YouTube channel. And that's when I say, exactly. Right. So I would say that's exactly the the most impactful thing that it's had is it gives me that absolute bragging rights that no matter who you want to compare us to, we've actually proven it up front that we can do it and we can do more. So that was number one. Number two is, and this is a little a little secret technique, and uh, you know I'm giving it away for the first time in history. I actually put my email address on every single video on the top on the bottom right. I put my email address, but I never say email me. I never say if you want services, hire me. I never say if you want to learn more, call me. I never do that, but I leave my email address in there. So what ends up happening is, is I get a lot of emails from people saying, hey, I saw your video, thank you very much. By the way, I don't know if you do this, but can you do consulting? Uh, because I'm trying to do this and I try, you know, it didn't quite work out the same way. So people are asking me, can you do consulting for me? They're, they're soliciting me. And, and, and when people solicit you, you got the upper hand in value, in pricing, you name it. So that's the biggest impact that it has, that, that I've been able to get people find me instead of me finding customers. And the absolute bragging rights, I'm telling you, it's worth something. Another way to phrase kind of the bragging rights part of it, not only are you building that rapport, not only are you establishing yourself as an expert, but you're also differentiating. I mean, in one sense, you would market it this way, but in one sense, you're the CPA with a with the best YouTube channel, right? More specifically, the best QuickBooks YouTube channel. And so that is a way to distinguish you. And you mentioned you use that in the sales conversations when the idea of comparison comes up, but then also that second idea of you're not having to go out and find customers, they're finding you, which is the ideal business model Nowadays, because we're in this content-driven type of marketing model, well, we could do a whole nother show on this, but I want to bring it back to how we always end the show. What's one of your best stories about creating value for a customer? The best story I've had is when I've actually priced with a fixed price with options. And after we're done with our engagement, my clients come to me and say, Hector, I'm having a problem with my pricing or I, I suspect that we're not charging enough. I really liked how you were able to give me a price that I wasn't even expecting to pay for, but I ended up paying because I got enamored with the process. Can you teach me how to price like you? And that's huge because it, it validates the fact that my value pricing journey, it's getting better and better. But also if I can help my clients price better, if I can, if I could just simply just just turn on a little light bulb that says by increasing your prices by 1%, you can have 
possibly much deeper impact in your bottom line than decreasing expenses by 2%. And most people try to focus on, on decreasing those costs. Like I have a client that was in a, in a, in a cost-cutting rampage. Right? They wanted, to, wanted me to help them find places to cut costs. And, and their solution was, well, we're going to print on the, on the back of previously printed paper. And this, this caused more confusion than anything else. And I'm like, you, you know, you're, you're saving $100 a year in paper, you know, by doing this and, and creating thousands of dollars, uh, you know, a year in confusion with your staff. Why focus on expenses? Let's focus on increasing our prices. So, you know, me coming into most of my clients after, after you know, we, we did some sort of accounting engagement or QuickBooks consulting engagement is to come in and, and, and being able to make that change in mindset to help them increase their prices is the absolute best thing I've done for my customers and I continue to do as long as they welcome me uh, to do so. CPAs and bookkeepers have one of the best underutilized resources, their customers' numbers. Not in the sense of fraud, but in the sense you have the numbers. You know what expenses are high. You know what revenue is changing low and so forth. Ask questions about that because what you just described is moving from somebody who helps with record keeping and compliance to somebody who is helping create successful businesses, who's helping the business owners adjust their focus to where they can have the most results. And so by focusing on helping them create not only high value, but to create it in the best way and best place possible, you're helping them and in turn, they're going to be willing to help you. Hector, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that? So my email is hector at garciacpa.com. I welcome any questions, any emails. Um, As long as I can answer it in a short email, you will get an answer from me. And my website, which contains the links to all my channels, webinars, uh, projects, websites, is hectorgarcia.com. So email hector at garciacpa.com. And the website is hectorgarcia.com. Hector, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kirk. And don't forget, join our Facebook group, The Art of Value Society, by going to artofvalue.com slash society. Artofvalue.com.